This is Faith Ignited, the podcast where we put God back into history. Episode 8, And All Was Light A cold December breeze tugged at the drifting snow outside the window as an agonized cry wrenched from Hannah's throat. She felt sweat trace down her forehead to her cheek as yet another contraction came with greater intensity than the previous one. Her hands unclenched and her head drooped back when a moment of reprieve came again. The moment was brief. She was soon engulfed again in the suffocating pain of labor. She had not known, or at least had not comprehended, the cost of bringing a child into this world. She was becoming well acquainted with it now. She grasped onto a nearby hand for support likely cutting off the circulation of the woman it belonged to. Encouraging yet concerned faces stared down at her, and Hannah felt immensely grateful for the support of her friends. She was alone now. Never had she thought the child she would bring into this world would be fatherless, nor that she'd be left a widow just six months after her marriage. The unexpectedness of her husband's death, coupled with her accompanying grief, might have been what induced Hannah's early delivery. Now here she was, just three months after burying her husband, delivering their child. Hannah faintly heard someone instructing her to push, and she ground her teeth. Finally, a shrill cry of a baby split the air, and Hannah felt tears erupt from her eyes. When the child was eventually placed in her arms, she stared down at the babe with amazement. It was a boy, and perhaps the smallest child she'd ever seen. Murmurs echoed around her, some of the women commenting how sickly the child looked, and that they doubted such a baby would survive. Hannah tried to ignore them as she gently rocked her son. A stiff wind pounded against the window, reminding her that it was Christmas Day. Her son would share his birthday with the Son of God. Another mother, a virgin, had once held her newly arrived son just as Hannah did now. Wolsthorpe, England certainly wasn't Bethlehem but the parallel was consoling in a way. Now she just hoped God would grant her the gift, the miracle, that her child might live. Sir Isaac Newton is easily considered one of the greatest scientific minds of all history. His discovery of the laws of motion laid the foundation for our understanding of modern physics. Along with this, he made groundbreaking discoveries on light and spectral analysis, as well as inventing our modern telescope, and calculus, can't forget that. But centuries after his death, a new side of Newton has come to light, revealed by his lengthy personal writings. These writings, miraculously preserved down through the generations, reveal a side of this scientist that very few people know about. But of course, let's back up and I will give you some context first. Sir Isaac Newton was born Christmas Day, 1642, in Woolsthorpe, England. His father died three months before he was born, leaving his mother Hannah alone just nine months after their marriage. Isaac was born prematurely. Newton recounted later in life that two of the women who worked at the manor that had been sent to fetch another woman to come and see the baby, they took their sweet time because they thought that the child would probably be dead by the time they returned, so there was no need to rush. Fortunately, they were wrong. But from the beginning, Newton's childhood was not easy. He was born during one of the most chaotic periods in English history. 
a civil war was taking place, and massive changes in public affairs and the church continued to unfold throughout his life. But these changes that were taking place may also be part of the reason why people were more open to scientific discoveries. So it seems that he was born also at the right time. But looking closer to home, things were especially difficult for Isaac. I mean, you can imagine his mother was now a young widow, faced with the responsibility of running the farm and raising a child all by herself, and this all in the midst of a civil war. But three years pass, and Hannah is offered a marriage proposal from a well-to-do reverend named Barnabas Smith, who was over 30 years her senior. But things were different back then. It was not easy to be a single woman. And surely this was a very difficult decision for her. Especially when you take into account that Barnabas wanted nothing to do with Isaac. And he wouldn't even allow the child to live in his home. Despite this, Hannah does decide to accept his marriage proposal. Now, I won't claim to know the thought process that Hannah went through. Or why she did what she did. Because the fact is, we just don't know. But when you look at the circumstances, I feel we can draw some pretty sound conclusions of what she might have been thinking. For one, she was marrying a much older man than she was. He would have been considered elderly, really. People didn't live as long back then. So it's not likely that she married out of love or passion. But I also don't know that it would be fair to say that she just didn't care about Isaac. Because... The fact is, Isaac stood to gain a lot from their marriage as well. If Barnabas didn't live very long, which was likely, it would mean that Isaac would stand to inherit everything once he died. So was she an unfeeling mother who left her son, or a deeply selfless woman who endured an unhappy marriage and a separation from her son for his future benefit? We'll never really know. But if she'd hoped that her new husband would live only a couple of years, she was disappointed. He lived seven years after their marriage, long enough for her to have three more children. So for seven years, Isaac was left in the care of his grandparents, seeing his mother only occasionally. When Barnabas died, she came back to Woolsthorpe. But Isaac was ten years old now, and he probably felt like his mother was almost a stranger. And on top of that, he now had three half-siblings who had never experienced separation from their mother, who had received the time, attention, and affection that Isaac surely had craved all these years. That no doubt did some damage to that little boy's heart and mind. A lot of historians attribute his withdrawn nature to some of these experiences. But challenging as that was, Hannah's choice opened up many opportunities for Isaac. And chances are, he would not have become the great scientist we know without these trials. Now, I wish I had more time to cover some of these topics of the things that happened in his childhood and his adolescence. But to do a lot of summarizing, Isaac's mother wanted him to become a farmer. She wanted him to do what his father did. But Isaac had no interest in that. And that was very apparent. Eventually... Isaac's uncle was able to convince his mother to send him back to school. Isaac began attending Trinity College. He came home for a while during 1665 because of an outbreak of the bubonic plague. And it's from this period where he's home that we get this story of the apple falling on his head, thus inspiring his discovery of gravity. Now, that story is pretty debated by historians, but 
we do know that he made a lot of his groundbreaking discoveries during this time that he was home. Newton went on to publish many of these discoveries. He rose to elite positions such as a member of parliament, warden and master of the Royal Mint of London, and then he was knighted by Queen Anne. But of course, we aren't here to discuss his secular achievements. This podcast is interested in exposing the things hidden from the world, which is exactly what we're about to do. Because the side unknown is a man who prized spiritual knowledge as much, if not more, than secular. Now, many of you listening are probably surprised and thinking, Newton was religious? Yes, he was. Very religious. More than the contemporaries of his day ever knew. And more than our society today wants to actually acknowledge. Today, you'll be told that it's nigh unto impossible for a man of science to believe in something higher than himself or more than what he can just observe. That is not true. And Sir Isaac Newton is proof of that. When he died in 1727, they discovered copious amounts of writing, about 10 million words, enough to fill 150 novel-length books, which in and of itself is not surprising. He was a scholarly man and an astute observer of the world around him, so it makes sense that he would take the time to record his thoughts. However, the content of these papers surprised everyone. They were originally handed over to Cambridge, and Cambridge was excited to be able to try and divulge some scientific understanding from Newton's papers, but they ended up returning most of them, because very little of the content was actually about scientific matters. Most of it, to their surprise and disappointment, was religious by nature. Doctrinal explorations, biblical prophecies. He also had a lot on history and alchemy. Now, there were several reasons why people found this rather upsetting. You see, Newton had some interesting ideas, I dare say radical ideas, for his day. He had done extensive research about the early days of the Christian church, as well as absolutely dissecting the Bible. He had come to the conclusion through his studies that the gospel had existed from the beginning of the earth, but it had gone through periods of decline where the truth had been lost and then brought back again. And he believed that the church needed to again be cleansed and that the fullness of the gospel would come again to the earth at some future period. So because of this, there were certain doctrines that he didn't necessarily agree with. Like he did not believe in the Trinity. He believed that they were separate beings. Now views like that in his day were considered heresy. And Newton had become almost a hero in England. And nobody, especially his family, wanted him to be viewed as a heretic. And others in the science community just saw no worth in religious writings. So the papers were tucked away, being passed down through different hands, barely surviving a house fire in 1891. And then finally, in 1936, over 200 years after Newton has passed away, they are sent to Sotheby's Auction House in England, prepared to be scattered all across the globe and committed into the hands of God. As the luncheon came to a close and people once again began gathering for the next bidding, Abraham noticed several men pulling at their cravats. The July heat outside combined with the crowd was starting to make the room feel rather stuffy. 
not that Abraham himself found unbearable. The summers of England didn't begin to compare with the burning heat he'd experienced as a child and a young man in Jerusalem. A metal chest was carried to the front, placed so as to be within the view of everyone. Some eager faces began peering around while others whispered. Most, however, looked rather apathetic. After all, what could possibly be compared to the Rembrandt and Rubin paintings sold through Christie's auction house? However, as they opened the lid to the chest, Abraham drew closer, his interest peaked. He was always interested in claiming ancient documents. As the auctioneer's voice rang out overhead, announcing the next item, Abraham's eyes widened in amazement. Had he just heard what he thought he'd heard? Sir Isaac Newton's personal writings. The Sir Isaac Newton? As the papers began being extracted from the chest, Abraham was amazed. There were so many of them. Pages upon pages. A sea of knowledge that had been locked away in that chest. A strange sensation settled over Abraham. Bids began being raised at a surprisingly low price. Clearly very few present saw a great deal of worth in these papers. Abraham knew they were surely more valuable than those in the gathering realized, but he played the game, the one he was good at. He prided himself on having a nose for collecting. He knew when something was valuable, and these papers he instantly knew were something unique. When the bidding concluded, the pages had been distributed between three dozen men and Abraham was among them. As he looked down at the writing, chills spread down his back. Yes, there was something of deep value in these papers, perhaps more for their content than the money they'd surely make on a resale. Two weeks later, Abraham sat at his desk to write his wife about his discovery. Smiling to himself, he began to describe to her the magnitude of his finding. I am now excited, he wrote. I believe this is of the greatest significance for Newton's personal view on matters of faith. I am thrilled with the thought of acquiring them. He wrote a lot about the Bible and the Jews, about Cabela and all sorts of Jewish questions. As Abraham finished and put aside his quill, he glanced over at the stack of papers that contained the personal writings of Sir Isaac Newton. He felt sure a great mystery was contained within them, a mystery worth solving. Abraham Yehuda was not the only or even the most prominent collector of Sir Isaac Newton's papers, but I chose to feature him in this episode because, unlike others, Abraham appreciated the papers for the spiritual matters they contained. Economist John Maynard Kynes was one of the foremost to acquire Newton's writings, but he was intrigued by his works on alchemy. Abraham, on the other hand, a Jew and a brilliant scholar, had enough faith not to reject Newton's religiosity, and enough intellect to be able to comprehend his works. Abraham invested around $84,000 of what would be today's equivalent in collecting Newton's writings. He's part of the reason that we have them today. Something we learn from these writings is that Newton didn't see science and religion as two different entities that must stay separate from each other the way so many people do today, but rather as two coexisting and supporting truths. He said, I can take my telescope and look millions of miles into space, but I can go into my room and in prayer get nearer to God and heaven than I can when assisted by all the telescopes on earth. He wanted to know not just how things came to be, but why they came to be. 
He said, Gravity explains the motion of the planets, but it cannot explain who set the planets in motion. Now, coming from the guy who discovered gravity, that's really saying something. In his scientific treatise on optics, Newton wrote, Whence is it that nature doth nothing in vain? And whence arises all that order and beauty which we see in the world? Was the eye contrived without skill in optics? And the ear without knowledge of sounds? In other words, he's saying, Whoever set these things in motion was the most skilled being in the universe. He must understand the ins and outs and complexities of these things perfectly if he created them. Newton goes on to confirm this thought by continuing, Does it not appear from phenomena that there is a being incorporeal, living, intelligent, omnipresent, who in infinite space sees the things themselves intimately and thoroughly perceives them and comprehends them wholly? Consider this. If one of the greatest minds in all history had the humility to see evidence of God all around him, shouldn't we be able to as well? When did humanity become so foolish and arrogant to think that we can remove God's signature from his work and attribute it to chance? Newton said, Don't doubt the Creator, because it is inconceivable that accidents alone could be the controller of this universe. He also said, In the absence of any other proof, the thumb alone would convince me of God's existence. But so many scientists today try to tell us that the world just came about as an accident, that it just happened. But that stands in sharp contrast to the evidence all around us of a purposeful, loving God who puts such time, attention, and affection into his work. He's the author of such beauty and order. As Paul put it, it's the evidence of things not seen. God isn't a magician. He's a scientist, and a mathematician, and an artist, and so on. Clearly, Newton understood this. Newton said, I do not know what I may appear to the world, but to myself I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself in now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. Newton's motivation for so much of what he did was that he wanted to understand the workings of God and the laws by which he operates. As Alexander Pope poetically penned, Nature and nature's laws lay hid in night. God said, let Newton be, and all was light. Something that has been impressed upon my mind since starting this podcast are the individual purposes we each have in life. I can promise you that my purpose in life is not to contribute to the science world, but I'm grateful for those who have sought enlightenment in that area, because they bless my life. I think we'd all be wise to ponder what we might do to bring God's workings and his goodness to light, because all enlightenment, all discovery is because of him, even if we don't acknowledge it. I think this idea is beautifully illustrated by a quote from Frank W. Borham, an English Baptist preacher. Speaking of some of the events of the early 19th century, he said, Men were following, with bated breath, 
the march of Napoleon and waiting with feverish impatience for the latest news of the wars. And all the while, in their own homes, babies were being born. But who could think about babies? Everybody was thinking about battles. In one year, between Trafalgar and Waterloo, there stole into the war a host of heroes. In 1809, Gladstone was born at Liverpool. Alfred Tennyson was born at the Summersby Rectory. And Oliver Wendell Holmes made his first appearance at Massachusetts. Abraham Lincoln drew his first breath at Old Kentucky. Music was enriched by the advent of Frederick Chopin at Warsaw and of Felix Mendelssohn at Hamburg. But nobody thought of babies. Everybody was thinking of battles. Yet which of the battles of 1809 mattered more than the babies of 1809? We fancy that God can only manage his world by big battalions, when all the while he is doing it by beautiful babies. When a wrong wants writing, or a work wants doing, or a truth wants preaching, or a continent wants opening, God sends a baby into the world to do it. Sir Isaac Newton came as a small and frail baby, but he grew into one of the greatest minds in all of history. He brought to light so much understanding about God's laws and how they govern this world. He didn't invent gravity, he discovered it. The technological advances of our day are simply a discovery of unalterable law, whether that's in medicine or mechanics, because the being that first uttered the words, let there be light, can teach us truth of every kind, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. He was the one who set the planets in motion, and he is the one who ignites our faith. 